Um, what I'm going to share with you tonight is out of Psalm 73, 25 and 26. So if you want to turn there, if you have the Bible, you can follow along. Let's see if I can get through this message without crying because it was very tender for me. Um, and we're going to talk about the heart. The title of my message is called Spiritual Heart Failure. So if you're there, I just want to tell you a little bit about the heart. Our physical human heart, it's about the size of a fist, like this. It's a muscular organ that keeps the body alive by pumping the blood to the body. This heart pumps 100,000 times per day. So our heart is working really, really hard. Considering the amount of work that this little pump does, it's not surprising that in man's imperfect, fallen condition, many hearts become damaged or diseased. Our body can survive without other organs, which are important but not essential. However, the body cannot survive without the heart. When it stops functioning, you die. Given the heart's many essential functions, it seems wise that we should take care of it. Yet heart disease has risen steadily over the last century due largely to changes in diet and lifestyle. It has become the leading cause of death for both men and women. It seems also wise that we should take care of our hearts spiritually because out of it springs the issues of life. Proverbs 4.23 says, spiritually speaking, due to the changes of diet, meaning the things that we are allowing in our hearts and our lifestyles, spiritual heart disease has taken its toll on believers everywhere. It's, in its natural condition, the human heart is wicked, untrustworthy, and deceitful. Our whole being, our desires, what we think, what we feel and behave have been contaminated by sin. And we who can know it, God knows it. While we look at the outer appearance, God always looks at the heart. He is the one who searches our hearts. Not even we can understand our hearts. It leads us astray, always. He is the only one who can peer into those inner chambers. It says in Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Our hearts are an open book with God. There is absolutely nothing that is hidden from him. Heart attacks and problems, both spiritually and physically, are not respecters of persons. It can happen to any of us. So we learned a little bit about the heart's function. Things happen in the heart. We devise plans, we scheme, we think, we make decisions. We also know how fragile our hearts can be. It can hurt, it can be broken, and it can fail us. This is where we pick up tonight. So let's read our two verses. It's verses 25 and 26, and we're not going to go through the whole psalm because it's too long and it'll take too much time, but I will reference some of the verses because I also want to give you a background as to why he's saying what he's saying. So it says, Who am I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I'm going to give you a short summary of what's transpiring here, and then we'll break it down in a minute. This was written by Asaph. He was the worship leader appointed by David. He was a worship leader. He found himself struggling with unfairness because he couldn't understand God's ways. He experienced spiritual heart failure and almost lost his faith in God. His perspective on things had become clouded, and his thinking had become warped. After struggling for a while, he finally went to the Lord and got his thinking straight. Getting things into perspective had allowed him to see his complaining heart, and he pours out his heart in repentance. So we pick up in verse 25 where it says, Whom, am I, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is none on earth that I desire besides you. After getting refocused, he realized that nothing else mattered but having God. Nothing will ever satisfy but him. Verse 26 says, my heart and my flesh fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So I broke it down into three points that we're going to look at tonight. Number one is experiencing heart failure. Number two is experiencing God's strength. And number three is experiencing God's sufficiency. So our first point here is experiencing heart failure. And we see that in verse 26a, where it says, my flesh and my heart fail. So ASAP here is suffering spiritual heart failure. This here is coming from a heart that has gone through turmoil and pain. The word fail here means to be at the end. It's exhausted. He had reached his limit and he had exhausted all of his strength 
and now he cries out to God. And there are many reasons for spiritual heart failure. Some things are beyond our control. They are simply just trials. And trials come with the territory of being a believer, which we will see in a little bit. John 16, tells us that to expect tribulation, but what? But he has overcome the world. He says you will, you will be persecuted, you will experience tribulation, you will experience trial. So we know as believers that it just comes with the territory. How many times in the Bible have we seen the saints broken, crying out to God while being attacked, persecuted, or going through deep sorrow and grief? Probably all of you here tonight can attest to being here at one point or another in your life. Some of you have experienced horrific things in your life. You have had more than your share of pain and suffering. You know what this spiritual heart failure feels like. And I want to encourage you that if you are experiencing spiritual heart failure tonight, know that God is with you. He is for you, and he will get you through. One of my favorite scriptures is in Romans 8, 35 through 38, and it reads, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Skip into verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ. <clears throat> this is a beautiful promise for us girls. God is bigger than your pain. God is bigger than your sorrow. And his grace will be sufficient to get you through this. So not only does spiritual heart failure come from things we can't control, but spiritual heart failure can also be brought on by our own doing, which is the case here with Asaph. We will see the reasons in a moment. What has happened here, if you look at verse 3, was that Asaph had become so discontent and bitter that he almost suffered shipwreck. He was on a rant why the ungodly seemed to have no problems. He couldn't understand why it seemed that they were so prosperous, they had health, they had wealth, they didn't have a care in the world. They were even prideful about it. Things always went right for them. I get it, and it can be frustrating when you're experiencing trial after trial and you're being beat up and, and you're just, the storms just keep beating on you, and, and, but yet we feel like others that deserve to have that treatment, they, they're just sailing through life. Nothing ever happens to them. We don't understand that, and we, we won't. We're not made to understand that. That's God's business. God does, and that's all that matters. God runs the universe, so I'm sure he knows why and what is happening with, with our lives. We don't need to. We probably couldn't comprehend it anyway. Did your parents ever tell you when you questioned them, because I said so? Well, we leave it at that, God's, because I said so, and that's, that's it. We don't have to question so the more Asaph pondered these things, the more distorted his vision, his vision became. There is so much in here, but I don't have time to elaborate on, but just consider what Philippians 4, 8 tells us about meditating on those things that are pure and trustworthy and truth. Because there's a whole lesson here about controlling our thought patterns and why, but there's, there's no time. So read that on your own. So because Asaph didn't take his wandering thoughts into captivity, now in verse 13 and 14, he says, Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Asaph had the wrong notion that because he served God, kept his heart pure and did all the right things, and kept his hands clean, that he would have a trouble-free life. We don't serve God because of what we get out of it, girls. Warren Wiersbe says, Satan has a commercial view of a life of faith and encourages us to serve God for what we can get out of it. Read Job 1 and 2, and Asaph almost bought into that philosophy. Some people serve God so they can get something. Maybe he will bring their husband back, or maybe they'll get a husband in the first place, or whatever they are wanting. We need to serve God because he alone is worthy of our praise, and that's the reason why. He's worthy of our worship, and we need to serve him regardless of what he allows in our lives. Revelation 4.11 says, You alone, O Lord, are worthy to receive all glory, all honor, all praise. We worship him because he is good, because he is sovereign, meaning he is in control of all things at all times. 
if it happens that our husbands do return or our children do come back or we get the husband or we don't or we get that job, that's a blessing. But will we worship even if we don't? Will we worship if things don't happen? When we have lost everything, like Job, even when life seems unfair, even when we are suffering, will we bless his name like Matt Redmond sings, whether we're in the desert place or whether we walk through the wilderness when the darkness closes in or on the road marked with suffering or where there's pain in the offering? Can we say like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord has taken away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. So this is where Asaph was. At one point in this psalm, Asaph was not even aware of his dangerous heart condition until it was almost too late. Verse 2 says that he had almost stumbled and he had almost slipped. Sometimes we don't even know that we even have a spiritual heart condition that can be leading us to this spiritual heart failure. We get up every day and make every effort to beautify ourselves and make ourselves presentable, don't we? We are very self-conscious about the way we look, right? All of us took time out today to beautify ourselves, to put makeup on, to comb our hair, to get dressed, and to, so you can look presentable tonight. I mean, look around, you're all so beautiful. You look beautiful. But how many of us, me included, take the same consideration and time to work on the most critical, sensitive, and productive part of our bodies, the one nobody sees except God? The Bible says that man looks at the outer, but God looks at the heart. That is God's workshop in our bodies. I am so glad that my heart is hidden because I'd be so embarrassed of, of some of the things that are in it sometimes. God works in secret between me and him. My heart can be so ugly, so, so ugly. I hate it sometimes. I'm even embarrassed sometimes that God looks into my heart. I really am. I like the way Peter says it in the NLT. He says, don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself instead with the beauty that comes from within. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. If that is precious to God, how much emphasis do we need to make that our workshop too? The psalmist cried out in 1912, verse 1912, in the NLT, How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. That was Psalm 119. And in Psalm 119, another verse, Hide your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. He prayed, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in his sight. Do we even bother to bathe it in God's word? You see, when we have a healthy heart, it radiates on the outside. The fruit of what is in our inner hearts flows into our character and attitudes. That could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing, depending on our heart condition tonight. What is our attitude tonight? What mental or spiritual state are we in? Do we have peace, joy, patience, love, and joy in the Holy Spirit? Or are we anxious, worried, irritable, angry, short-tempered, mean, and hurtful? Abraham Lincoln said, you can fool all the people some of the time, and some of the people all the time, but you cannot fool all the people all the time. We can even fool ourselves for a time, but he left out that we can never fool God. God knows what's in our heart, always. Nothing is ever hidden from God. When someone experiences heart failure physically, they usually learn that there was some kind of heart condition or underlying problem that led up to it. The same can be said of our hearts spiritually. The first and foremost heart problem we must all deal with is sin. All of us are born with this heart problem, unfortunately. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that the hearts of all people are full of sin. He compares it to the madness that goes on during the whole of their lives. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus mentions the fallen condition of our hearts in Mark 7. From within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, greed, malice, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man or a woman unclean. Our biggest problem comes from within, internal. In order for a person to be saved, that heart must be changed. This can only happen by the power of God in response to faith in His grace. God can create a new heart within us, like it says in Psalm 51. 
Those that have been born again have been given a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 says, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. And that's a promise. That's something that God does. We don't have to do that. We just come to him and trust him and surrender our lives. And he does the work in us. He says in Philippians that he will be faithful to complete that work that he's begun in us. Now that we've been given a new heart, we are to take care of it. In Proverbs 4, 23, it tells us to keep and guard our hearts. Acts tells us to purify our hearts. Ephesians says not to be blinded in our hearts. And Hebrews tells us not to harden our hearts. Why are we given so many warnings about the heart? Because Jeremiah 17 says that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only the Lord. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart. Ladies, don't believe everything in the songs, the commercials, the movies, even Hallmark, the world. They tell us to listen to our hearts and follow our hearts. But our hearts will lead us astray. Remember in Hallmark, I love those movies too, but they get paid to be a good husband. They get paid to be a good wife. They make a lot of money doing that. And they get paid to look beautiful and not have a flaw and then all the filters that they use. So don't get caught up in it. It's okay to watch it, but just don't bank your life on that. <laughs> so some of us are suffering serious consequences today because we followed our hearts. Because it felt so right or it seemed right. Proverbs 14, 12 warns us about the way that seems right, but its end is the way of death. We need to listen to what the Bible says when it concerns our hearts. God is the one who searches it and sees what is in there. God can see our blocked arteries, our plaque, or the heart problems we have. We know in the physical sense that conditions like high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, etc., they damage their heart, our hearts and lead us to heart failure. Then there are other things that damage our hearts that we inflict on ourselves, like smoking, drinking, poor diet, alcohol, drugs, etc. How many times has the doctor told someone that they need to stop smoking or drinking, change their diet, exercise? Some people have suffered serious consequences because they didn't listen. How many times has God told us to stop lying, stop fornicating, stop hating, stop gossiping, stop backbiting, stop being angry, or to forgive or to let go of bitterness, pride, envy, or jealousy, and the list goes on, it's long. Many of us suffer serious consequences because we don't listen either. Sin separates us from God, and when we don't get rid of those sins, we're miserable, like Asaph. We will eventually experience spiritual heart failure. This was happening to Asaph in this psalm. Here in our text, one of the Asaph's heart problem was envy, that you see in verse 3. He says, for I was envious of the boastful. Envy is defined as a feeling of discontentful or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, quality, or luck. It can be an easy trap to fall into, especially when our world seems to be falling apart. We can get bitter and anxious like Asaph. You see, it hardly takes any effort for us to sin, because it's our fleshly nature. It's easy to sin. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, not sinning is what takes the effort for us. Like Galatians says, that the flesh is always warring against the spirit, and vice versa. Sin is always crouching at the door, and its desire is for us. Proverbs 23 says, Don't let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all day long. One of the things that I feel that I believe helped to keep Asaph from sinning, from succumbing to his spiritual heart failure, is found in verse 1 of this psalm. It states, truly, God is good to Israel. This foundational truth is what kept Asaph anchored and able to survive his crisis. When the going gets rough, and it will, if it already hasn't, this truth will be an anchor to your soul. God is good all the time. I love that you sang that song, because God is good all the time, even when things going on in our lives are not good. If we accuse him of being unfair, then we are denying his goodness. We do not understand why bad things happen to people or why some have it harder than others. 
but we don't need to understand because God's ways are not our ways. He's working different things out in our lives. What he's working out in my life, he's not working out in your life and vice versa. He's sovereign and he's in control of all things, all the time. God is the master tailor. He custom makes our trials. What trial may, may work patience in me is not gonna work patience in you and vice versa. He knows exactly what we need to work out what he's trying to do. They, everybody needs different circumstances. Bottom line, trust God, because Romans 8.28 says that he works all things together for good. So Asaph took his eyes off God and put them on man. He was bitter and went on and on and worked himself into a tizzy. The more he pondered and fed his imaginations, the more exaggerated it became. It isn't fair. It doesn't take much to get ourselves going, does it, girls? We just go down that road and we get all worked up for things that don't even, aren't even true. They're just all imaginations in our mind because we just follow that little, that little thought and we just, it explodes. And this is where Asaph was. So he got so riled up that he nearly stumbled because of it. And really, is it really worth it, girls? Remember, no matter what the ungodly have or this person has over there, they don't have God, they don't have anything. It's so easy to forget what we have when we focus on what others have. We are blessed, and the Bible says that we, daily he loads us with benefits. So we need to keep our eyes on the Lord and not on what others have or what others are doing. So poor Asaph, he got so caught up in what the other guy was doing that he lost sight of God's goodness and faithfulness and justice. Nobody gets away with sin. Not us, not them, not anyone. Everyone will stand before God one day. And because he had his eyes on other people, envy came knocking at the door. And he let him in. Little did he know that envy, like other sins, bring along companions like discontentment, jealousy, comparing, and turmoil. He no longer had the peace of God, but was vexed. Girls, we must guard our hearts and minds and keep our eyes on the Lord. Godliness with contentment is great gain, says 1 Timothy 6. I know it's hard when we get our eyes off the Lord. Our perspective can be distorted. We become disoriented from the truth, and we can start comparing instead of being content. The enemy will make sure to magnify others' seemingly good life and try to convince you that you're missing out. If you're single, he'll convince you that you won't be complete until you're married. And if you're married, he'll try to convince you that the grass is greener on the other side and you're missing out. If, 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 this, if that. Whatever you have will never be enough. He never runs out of, of schemes. He's always scheming in your life. It may seem as if the ungodly have everything, but they don't. And what they have is temporary. The world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of, the, of God lives forever, says 1 John 2, 17. We must be careful not to measure the blessings of God in terms of material success and a trouble-free life. For it is in our trials that we grow and we experience God in ways that we normally would not and could not. Romans 5, 3, 4 says, We also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations Tribulations produce perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. He is doing that, girls, in your life, in my life. With every hurt, with every trial, with every tear, nothing is, nothing is wasted, nothing. It is building us, it's growing us, and it's refining us as that gold. In Job 23.10, it says, But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. If you haven't read the book of Job, you need to. This is said from a man who suffered it all and lost it all. The Bible warns us about envy, and Asaph lost sight of God's goodness and faithfulness in his life, and it turned into envy. What is it to him what happens in other people's lives, and what is it to us? Psalm 37.1 says, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Be careful not to fall into the sin of envy, girls. Besides envy being one of Asaph's heart problems, one of the other conditions that led him to spiritual heart failure was found in verse 21. And in NLT it says, Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was torn up inside. Dictionary defines bitterness as anger and disappointment at being treated unfairly, resentment. 
Hebrews 12, 14, and 15 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, causing trouble, and by this many become defiled. That's heavy. I mean, think about that. We become defiled by 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 keeping that root of bitterness, by not pulling it out. Like we go out there and pull out the weeds out of the garden, they'll take over. And bitterness will do the same thing in our heart. It'll just grow and fester, and it'll bring along other all those other companions that I talked about. Woodrow Cole said, when the root is bitterness, imagine what the fruit might be. You think about that, what we plant is what, we, what grows and what sprouts. When the root is bitterness, imagine what the fruit might be. Think about that. With that in mind, I cannot stress how damaging this can be in your spiritual life. But not only to your spiritual life, but bitterness is so strong that it can harm us physically as well. Most people who harbor bitterness also experience anxiety, depression, and rage. It may also cause adverse changes in metabolism, immune system functions, and organ functions. Bitter, angry people have higher blood pressure and heart rate and are more, more likely to die of heart disease than any other illness. So how do we deal with bitterness? We must get that scalpel of God's word and let him do some heart surgery. That heart problem must be fixed. Ephesians 4, 31-32 says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Get rid of it. Let it go. Remember Elsa and Frozen? I'm not going to sing it because you guys will clear out really fast and because it's recorded. Maybe if you didn't record that, I might have sang it, but I want you guys to, to blackmail you with it. <laughs> but remember she sang, let it go, let it go. You know, her heart was hard, like ice. And that's what our heart looks like when we hang on to the bitterness and, and envy and all those jealousy, all those things. This is heavy stuff, girls. This is like you're damaging. So it's said that bitterness is, is like drinking poison and then hoping your enemy will die. That doesn't even make sense, but yet that's what we do. Maybe you find yourself harboring bitterness tonight. You have been struggling with letting it go. This person has caused you too much pain. He has no remorse. She has no remorse. The hurt is too deep. You don't know what they've done, Marcella. You, don't, you just don't understand. May I ask, how can we think that holding on to bitterness is hurting them? How can we think that? We give control to the enemy when we hold on to bitterness, and he uses it against us to eat away at our lives, and the persons who suffer are the ones we love the most. They experience the fruit of that bitter spirit. Remember, there is nothing hidden from God. God sees all, and he knows all. He is aware of everything and what everyone does at all times. Nobody is going to get away with that person that caused cause you to be bitter. They're not going to get away with what, what they're doing. They're not. God sees, and they're going to have to answer one day. Leave it in his hands to deal with because he is God. Pour out your bitterness so that God can pour in his peace. Don't be concerned about how others are behaving like Asaph. We need to concern ourselves over and over with our own behavior, right? We have no problems of our own. We can't solve other people's problems, but we can work on ourselves. Are our own hearts right before God? That's what we need to be concerned with. Or like Asaph, are we more concerned with their hearts? That's between them and the Lord. And our hearts are between us and the Lord. Don't try to figure out what is fair and what's not fair. Precious daughters of the living God, Jesus, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He hung on a cross, was beaten, tortured, and slain willingly. Talk about not being fair. That wasn't fair. And he didn't do it for just good people, but for sinners like me, like you, like Judas, Charles Manson. We deserve death. He had mercy on us. He forgave us, and he commands us to forgive one another. Think of the mercy and grace that he extended to each one of us. And think of the grace and mercy that he extends to us every day as we fall short and as we sin. So I understand the struggle with bitterness and how it can affect you and cause your heart to become hard. Because it was something I had to deal with in my own heart. 
My bitterness turned into hatred, and soon stubbornness was taken along. Excuse me. So before I get to the next point, Liz had wanted me to share a little bit of my testimony with you. And since we are in the subject of bitterness, I thought this was a good place to do it. I know you don't have two or three hours to hear my whole story, so I try, I try to condense it as much as, as possible. But my husband and I were high school sweethearts. We started dating when I was 15, when he was 16. Journey, don't you? You didn't hear that, okay? <laughs> my granddaughter there says, well, I'm 16. <laughs> Things were different back then. <laughs> so he was easy to fall in love with, as he had so many good qualities, besides being so cute. No, he was. He still is cute. <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he was very responsible and mature, and he treated me like a princess. I was very outgoing in school, had tons of friends, and I loved to have fun, to laugh. I loved to enjoy life. After we dated for a while, he became very possessive and very jealous. Pretty soon when he was around, which was always, I couldn't be around my friends or I couldn't talk to them. He would get very angry and soon he became physical with me. Pretty soon if I went anywhere without him, including to the market with my mom, it would not end well. He would get angry. So I knew that it didn't seem right, but I didn't want anybody to know what I, was, what I was going through. I would hide behind my smiles and laughter at school so nobody would know what I was going through. I didn't want to break up because he would be so sorry when he lost his temper that he would cry and beg me to forgive him and ask me to help him. I've always been the fix-it kind of person, so I always believed it. I'm going to fix him. Things are going to get better. If I just get through this, he's going to change. I always believed it. I, I always believed that, that he was going to change. <clears throat> so I carried this secret. When he was happy, our relationship was great. But when he was not happy, it wasn't so great. It would get ugly. I soon found myself in both physically and verbally abusive relationship. I really loved the nice part of him. He was everything you'd ever want in a guy, but I really hated the mean side of him, and I became fearful of him. He had threatened me many times what would happen if I left, and when I would look into his eyes when they were angry, I would see a rage that would scare me half to death, and I believed his threats. We did break up a few times during those years, but his, it was his choice, of course. Even then, he would stalk me after he would drop off his then-girlfriend or whatever he was doing. Fast forward, the next year after graduation, I ended up pregnant. At the advice of my parents, we decided to wait until the baby was born to decide if we really wanted to be married. We wanted to marry out of love, not out of obligation. So after our daughter was born, our first daughter, she's here tonight, he was at our house 24-7 whenever my mom and dad would let him be there, wanting to be a part of her little life and helping me. So it was shortly after that that we got married because he didn't want to be apart from, I think maybe her now that I think about it. <laughs> um, so, so things seemed to get better for a little bit. We got our own little apartment and started to live our little lives. And as time went on, the anger surfaced along with the possessiveness and the jealousy. Our relationship continued to be a roller coaster. We had great times, mostly when the kids were involved but we also were struggling in our marriage a lot. We were not saved, so drinking was not an issue for either of us. We would go out with family and friends, they're, they're here, and drink and have a good old time. But it wasn't so fun when it, when it started to become a habit for my husband. Our house was always a hangout for the boys and for my brother-in-law, my sister, everybody would hang out at my house. So my husband had close friends from high school that would come over and hang out and party, bring the 12 packs. He started to drink more and more, and I noticed that whenever he had a lot to drink, his anger would surface and he would change. He wasn't happy. He would get angry and he would be mean. He began to change, and pretty soon he became this very mean and unhappy, miserable person. And misery loves company, so he did his best to make sure that I wasn't wearing a smile and that I was miserable too. The verbal abuse got really bad, and he continued to be physically abusive. He started changing his appearance, working out, coming home late from work, and at times he didn't come home at all. As a wife, I knew what was happening. I knew in my heart. 
So when I would try to talk to him, we would end up in fights and end up either verbally or physically abusing me. He began to ne neglect me as a wife. I became a hermit and I didn't want to go anywhere because I was so depressed. And I believed all the ugly things that he said about me. And the names he would call me, I started to believe that I was, I was those things. I had zero self-esteem and was convinced that I was ugly, fat, unattractive, and nobody would ever want me. I was afraid to leave the house because even though he didn't want me, he didn't want anyone else to have me. He told me if I ever left, he would kill me. And if I ever wanted to be with anyone, he would kill him too. And he didn't care if he went to jail. And I believed him. So we separated a few times during this time, but he would always come back and beg me to forgive him that things would change and I'd always believe him and take him back. I don't know why, but I just did. My heart had been so battered that I began to put up walls and pretty soon he couldn't hurt me anymore. His abusive words no longer had any effect on me. There was nothing he could call me that would even phase me. I, I promise that I, I just, I was like a wall, like it did bounce off. Oh, is that all you got? You know, no problem. So I found myself building up hatred and resentment and this bitterness towards him. I couldn't live like this anymore. We finally had one really, really, really big blowout. And when I saw it affect my daughters, that was it. I had had it. I'm not going to look that way. <laughs> oh, okay. I think all the years of pent up anger and, and resentment and pain exploded and I lost it. This time I was the crazy one. I told him to leave and in my heart I knew this was it. I had had it. I realized how much I hated him. I hated him for hurting me, for the way I felt about myself, and for ruining my life. He left after my outburst, but this time when he came begging and crying, it didn't affect me one bit. Looking back, I know now that my heart was very hard. I was harboring bitterness, hatred, unforgiveness, and resentment, and I made it clear to him how I felt at this point. I didn't even care about the threats because I figured I'd rather die than live with him. I really didn't care what he did to me. I just know that I couldn't live like that anymore. It took him a while for him to see that I really meant it. He cried to see the girls, so I would let him pick them up. But when I saw that it was his way of getting to me, manipulating me again, I made arrangements for him to pick them up at his parents' house, and that was our drop-off point, because I did not want to see him. Not only was I harboring hatred and bitterness, but now I was becoming very, very stubborn. I had already been going to school to become a court reporter, but when this happened, I made a plan. I was going to do as Frank Sinatra saying, I did it my way, and I was gonna just have run my life the way I wanted to run it. I was gonna focus on finishing school, make lots of money, and I wouldn't need anything from him. I was gonna take care of my girls, and I didn't want a penny. I didn't want to, I didn't have any reason to see him whatsoever. This is really sad because he would take his whole check, he was always responsible, he would take his whole check every week and put it in my account and take just like a few dollars for the week. So I, I still had all his money and everything, but I didn't want anything to do with him. That's how bitter I was. So I didn't want to give him any reason to see me either. I would be self-sufficient and he would never be able to hurt me again. Meanwhile, he was still trying to pursue me, telling me he was gonna get help. He acknowledged that he was an alcoholic and that he had an anger problem. He said he would do anything to have just one more chance. He would t try to tell me all the things he was doing to change. I found out through my sister, because he lived with her, <laughs> she was keeping a close eye on him, <laughs> that he read the Dianetics book. I don't know if you remember that Ron Howard book, that, or Ron Hubbard. Yeah, so he tried that. He goes, I read Dianetics, and I, I don't care what you read. Um, he went to AA. I didn't care. I was happy for him that he was getting help, but I was happy for himself, not because there was gonna be an us. There was no us, nor would there ever be. I could care less what he was doing. I actually wished that he would have found someone. I was always thinking, gosh, why can't he just find a girlfriend and go live? I mean, how, think about it now. I was kind of, a, I had a little bit of jealousy, but I wanted him to find somebody just so he could leave me alone. I thought if he found somebody, then he won't focus on me. 
And so the more he begged me, the more I hated him. And I told him, finally, he needed to leave me alone because I really didn't want to hate him, but I did. And I said, the more you beg me and the more you bug me, the more I can't stand you and I resent you. So just please leave me alone. Let me be. So he finally did. So during this time, as soon as the word got out that I was separated, my friends began calling me up to go for a drink, go to a party, go dancing, you know, all the things that the world does. It had been something we used to do when I was single, and at times, actually, my husband used to let me go out with the girls, and we would go, you know, dancing or whatever. And I didn't, I didn't have any reason at that time not to go out now, because now I'm free. Now I don't have him stalking me, and he was out of my life. Because remember, when you're in the world, it's not, you don't think it's a sin to do stuff like that. It's okay, even okay to date, and, you know, people live with each other and whatever. So I don't even know how word got around, but one of my exes started to call me, asking me to take me out and go have coffee. I know now how the word got around. The enemy knows our weaknesses, girls. He knows that. Don't fall for the traps that he's trying to set for you. Those are just temporary fixes and temporary pleasures. And for some reason, even though I wasn't a believer, I just didn't have, I can't say I didn't have peace because that's the Christian term, but I just didn't feel right. I just knew that's not what I was supposed to do at this time. Because I knew that the next morning after I would get drunk or go out or whatever, I'd have the time of my life probably. But the next morning I would still be empty. The next morning I would I'd probably be suffering consequences from what I did the night before. And I knew that I needed that peace in my life. And you still will be empty the next morning after these things. You will still yearn for peace. True joy, true fulfillment until you fill it with Jesus. Until he is your portion and until he is the one that you desire. And for some reason during this time, I just I just didn't even feel like doing this. So at even at one point in our marriage, I thought of payback. I thought, well, I'm just going to do what he did to me. I'm going to pay him back and I'm going to hurt him so he can see how much he hurt me. What it felt like. But now that I had the chance, it didn't sound appealing to me. In spite of my heart and heart that was so full of hatred, it was so broken. Not because he was out of my life, but because I never thought I would find myself in this situation. I never wanted to go through divorce. My parents were an example of working things out and growing all together. I was hurt, I was disappointed, I was embarrassed, and I felt so broken. At this very dark and difficult time in my life, little did I know that my heart was in such need of love, such need of healing, and such need of forgiveness. I did not know that it was that it was empty and that I was longing, but God did. He knows all, even our thoughts and our needs, and God desires to draw us into his presence no matter what we're feeling. That's his desire. Even we're, when we are doing our own thing and we're out there and we're, we're not acknowledging him, his desire is that he wants us near him. He wants to draw us near. I was out there making my own plans, and yet he was wooing me. He woos us, and I didn't know that at the time, but I remember one night picking up this little good news Bible that we have, which I brought tonight, because you probably don't even know what this looks like. I mean, it's hard to, my daughter's found it, and, and it has, has little pictures. It's, it's like an English version, and I remember, oh, there's my daddy. He's in heaven. <laughs> but um, I picked up this Bible that, we, that has, it has cute little illustrations. So it's a real simple little Bible in, in, in like English, just a simple English language. And I picked it up one night and I read it. I don't know why, but I just, the kids went to bed and I thought, I'm gonna read, I'm gonna pick that up and read it. So I started reading it and I felt so much peace when I did. The next night I picked it up and read it again and more peace. I really didn't even understand what I was reading. I can't even tell you what I read, it's so crazy. But I, all I can tell you is that I experienced such peace and comfort that I never, ever had. It made me want more, and I couldn't wait until the next evening to put the girls to bed and have my date with my little Bible. I began to cherish that time so, so much. I put it in the fireplace and dimmed the lights, and it was just such an intimate, beautiful time. The Bible is God's word, and I didn't understand it back then, but now I know why it had such an effect on me. Because the Bible is living, it's powerful, and it's able to discern the thoughts. And it's a two-edged sword. It's like a scalpel. And God guided that little sword ever so gently, cutting away at the hatred, the bitterness, the hardness, and even the stubbornness. I didn't even know back then 
that this was in the Bible, but it was in my life, was Psalm 16:2. In his presence is fullness of joy, and he was my hiding place. I did not even know that I was in his presence, and he was drawing me close to him. He was pursuing a relationship with me, wooing me with his word. I did not even know that things were happening in my heart, but I just knew that what I felt was like nothing I had ever felt before, even when I was mad in love with my boyfriend in high school. Little by little, he healed me in different ways and was changing my heart that had been very broken and set on my own way. He gave me a new heart of flesh for that heart of stone that I had. He gave me a heart to forgive and to trust him with my marriage again, to let him do it this time. My husband was patient, and as God did a work in my heart, he was also working in his heart. Eventually, God did change my heart, and I was able to let go of the bitterness. I was able to let go of the pain, the anger, and yes, even the stubbornness. I just broke that record by Frank Sinatra because I believed the lie like I told you not to do <laughs> earlier. So thank God I didn't do it my way because really, I, wouldn't, I would not be here today. And the Bible says that, that unless your law had been my delight in Psalm 119, I would have perished in my affliction. And I would have followed down that road of being a court reporter and making the money. And I would have just, who, just who knows where I would have been. I have beautiful daughters, I have beautiful grandkids. And, and I, I just don't know. It would have been awful to think of where my life would have ended up. God is so good. I remember when I told my husband, when I decided to let him come home, I said, one chance, one chance you do one thing, just one thing, and, and just it's forever. So God continued to lead me all the way to salvation. And I stand here tonight as a testimony of his power, his grace, his love. He miraculously saved a marriage that I thought was hopeless. And I tell other people, if he can save my marriage, he can save your marriage. And I wasn't even willing. I have women coming in for counseling. They're, they're, they're willing. They want to work on their marriage. And that's a good thing because you have a willing heart already. And imagine what God can do with your marriage that you're, you're willing or, or whatever you're praying about. If he can do it in someone who wasn't even, I was stubborn. I was not, I'm not, I wasn't doing anything to get back, to get my marriage back. And yet, in his mercy and grace and love, he, he changed my heart, even from that. And so I don't have time to get into all the little details, but as time went on, I think of the patience that God has. Here, he loved me so much, and he was willing to wait for me. And that's awesome, because I don't know, men get impatient, and they're like, well, we're going to do it now, or we're not going to do it. You know, and even when you're waiting upon a guy, and he wants to marry you right away, and you're saying, hey, no, we need to wait. You know, God was willing to wait for me. Our relationship was one-sided at that point because Jesus was pursuing me, but I wasn't in love with him. All I knew was that I, was, I liked what I felt when I read his word. I know I liked spending time with him because that is what I was doing when I was reading his Bible. And he was so patient, so, so patient to wait for me and to pursue me and to settle for a one-way relationship until I finally did surrender to him and fall in love with him. And now there's no turning back. And I, like I said, Psalm 119, it was verse 92 says, unless your law had been my delight, I would have then perished in my affliction. And the New Living Testament words that I would have died in my misery. Wow. And I really feel like I would have. I, and I would have been miserable. I know I would have. It is really special to me because looking back, had his word not been my delight, I would have perished. And I can't imagine, I can't even imagine where I'd be today. Thank Thanks be to the Lord for all his wonderful works. And if your relationship is one-sided tonight, don't wait, girls. I'm here to tell you that you will never regret giving your life to him. There will never be another love like him. You know that song by Lou Rawls, some of you that are old, a little older, or maybe some of you that like the, the older songs? He says, you'll never find another love like mine. No, God, you'll never find another love like mine. And you can search the whole world through. He's it. The search is over, girls. It's over. So we're going to get back to finishing up this uh, scripture. That's my testimony. You know it now. And I'm going to hide from me when I see you. <laughs> and please don't hate my husband. He's a great man. <laughs> I told him, babe, I'm going to be sharing. Are you okay with that? I'm going to share your testament. I was trying to like not go into detail. And he goes, babe, it's okay. He goes, but I'm probably not going to have any friends after tonight. I go, no, they love you because he's a wonderful man. Like he has not stop making it up to me. 
you know, and God really did change him. And, and, and I just think that's wonderful to see him as, you know, both of us. It's like, why us, Lord? Why? I mean, it's crazy to think that, that he, we are where we are. And when I tell people, don't tell him, but when I tell people, like I run into high school, what, are, what is Lonnie doing now? He's a pastor. <laughs> what? Because they knew he was like, had a little attitude and prideful and, and angry. And, you know, and he was the boss of the neighborhood. And, and they can't believe it, you know. So, but that's good because that's the power of God, you know, in, in our lives. And so I don't know why God chose this, but he did. It's not anything that we've done, girls, just like in your life. God has a plan for your life, too. And you don't, it's not because you're good or it's not because you have all these gifts. No, he chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And the weak things, you know, I'm weak. I'm a weak person, I promise you. Without God, I can't, I can't do anything. I can't, I'd never, never, ever be up here. I mean, I, was, I would skip school when I had to do it with speech. You know, I just, it's just not me. It's the Lord. It's all the Lord and all glory goes to him. So back to uh, our scripture. So Asaph is experiencing spiritual heart failure. And now he's repenting and acknowledging his weakness. He draws upon God's strength to revive him. Bringing us to point number two, which was experiencing God's strength. Verse 26. He said, but God. Remember he said, my heart and flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my life. Asaph had got a little sidetracked. But back in verse 17, he states, when I thought of how to understand this, it was too painful to me until I went into the sanctuary of God. I love this so much. I, I was just like so excited when I kept reading it and reading. I thought, it's so awesome. It's, he did what we should all do when we find ourselves struggling, when we are focused on ourselves. Asaph did the right thing. In his spiritual struggle, he didn't go to his friends, but to the Lord. He was at a crossroad. It would make a difference what influence would be allowed in his life at this pivotal moment of this crisis. Sometimes our friends mean well, but Asaph didn't need to be encouraged at that time to justify his feelings, but instead to be directed back to God. Choose friends who will do that in your lives, girls. Be the friend who will do that. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend, says Proverbs 27, 17. He went into the sanctuary to spend time with the Lord, to hear the word, to worship, to be with other believers. The sanctuary of God is a holy place. It's a safe place. It's a place of protection, a place of refuge, a place where you hear God's word. Psalm 119, 125 says, My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I cannot tell you how important God's word is when we are in spiritual heart failure. Please read Psalm 119. It's too big to read it now. Um, Liz will probably throw me out of here if I try to read the whole psalm. But it's so long. But read it. It's beautiful. It's all about God's word. It's a whole other study that we don't have time for. But the word gives us hope. It gives us understanding. It revives us. It's truth. It sets us back from these fantasies that we have and imaginations that we have like Asaph. It shows us how things really are, not what they seem. Asaph needed an attitude adjustment. And there's no better place to get that than in the sanctuary, especially if your pastor doesn't candy coat the word but tells it like it is. He needed to put his eyes back on God so things could be brought back into perspective. But God, I love those two words. There is always hope in God. Psalm 61.2 says, When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Asaph had no strength of his own, nor do we girls. God gave him spiritual CPR. He held him up with his righteous right hand and revived him because he knows how to, to mend and revive our hearts. Spiritual heart failure can lead us to experiencing God's strength and spiritual revival if we cry out as Asaph did. The Bible says that our, our strength, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. It's okay to be weak, girls. Like I said, I'm up here, weak. I can do nothing without Christ. I struggle. I struggle too, but God is my strength. In Colossians 1.11, Paul prays that we might be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, which is limitless. Is he your strength tonight? And not only did Asaph experience God's strength, but he also experienced the last point, which is experiencing God's sufficiency. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Today, tomorrow, forever, he's all I need. If I have him, I have everything. He promises to supply all my needs according to his riches. Not some of my needs, but all. 
and he knows our needs. But remember, that doesn't include our wants, okay? It includes our needs. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. His power is sufficient. His love is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. He wants to be your sufficiency. You will never need nor want anything else. He is the only thing we will ever need now and forever. That beautiful worship song says it well. It says, I'm not here for blessing. Jesus, you don't owe me anything. More than anything that you can do, I just want you. Nothing else, nothing else will do. Is he your sufficiency tonight? Can you say like Asaph that there is nothing I desire besides you? Girls, as I end, are you experiencing spiritual heart failure tonight? Whether that spiritual heart failure came from the heart problems we caused or the ones that we have no control over, the remedy is the same. God, the great cardiologist, the one that formed our hearts, the one that knows our hearts, searches them, cleanses them, and revives them. Do we need to go into the sanctuary of God like Asaph to get refocused? refocused sorry. Are you fretting or worrying over evildoers, over your bills, your children, your husband, your circumstances? You are here in the sanctuary tonight. Make it right with God tonight. Hebrews 12, 1 2 tells us to lay aside every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us. Sins like envy and bitterness and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Not looking to others, looking unto Jesus, keeping your eyes on him. Those weights we carry weigh us down and hinder us, but Jesus says to come to him. Those that are heavy laden, those who are overwhelmed, those that are burdened with pain, with guilt, with sorrow, with pain, with grief, problems, we are not meant to carry those. He promises to give rest for our soul. Who doesn't want that? We get tired and we get weary. That means yielding our way of thinking, girls, surrendering our hearts, our wills, our way. Chris Tomlin has a song that says, it would be my joy to do your will, your way. I love that song. Ask him to search your heart tonight and see if there's any wicked way in you. Let it go so he can take that scalpel and remove and cut away the hardness, the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the envy, the pain, whatever it may be that is separating us from God and making us miserable. And I would end with this beautiful cry from Psalm 119, 36 and 37. And it says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Let's pray, ladies. Father, we just, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you, Father, for your sufficiency, Lord, for your strength, for your grace, for your love, for your mercy. I thank you for all these women that are here tonight, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that they would come here on a Friday night, Lord, when they could be anywhere else, Lord, but they have come into this sanctuary to hear your word and to worship and to and to sit at your feet, Lord. I pray that you bless each and every one of them, Father, whatever they may be going through, Father. I pray, God, that if they're in spiritual heart failure, Lord, that you would revive them tonight, Lord God. Lord, that you would just show them how much you love them, Lord. Like you met me, Lord. You met me when I wasn't even looking for you, Father. Lord, may you just reveal yourself to them, Father, and I pray that they would see that you're there for them, Lord God, and you're their all in all, Lord God. Lord, this world is so hard. Lord, it's so, so difficult to live in this world with all the, the lures and the problems, Lord. And it's just getting worse, Father. And I would pray that our eyes would be upon you in these last days. Lord, give each and every one of these women here strength to stay focused on you, God. Please don't let them get caught up, Father, in the snares that, that ensnare them, Lord, God. But may they run with endurance, that race that is set before them, casting aside those, those sins, Lord, and those snares, Lord, God. Father, I pray that you surround them with godly people who will encourage them to stay in the race, Lord God. And I pray that you would meet their every need, Lord God, whatever that need may be, Lord. And that you'd heal the hearts in here tonight, Lord. You'd heal the broken hearts, the pain, the sorrow, Lord, and all the things that they go through. I pray you bless this, this little church that you have planted here on this hill, God. 
God, that you would use Liz and Angel, Lord God, to reach this community here, Father. May you be a light on this hill to all those that will shine brightly, Lord, drawing the people to you, Father. And I pray you bless the rest of this evening, Father. I thank you for every lady that's here, and I pray, Lord, that you would receive all the glory, all the honor, Lord. And I just, I, I can never, ever stop praising and thanking you, Lord, for what you did in my life, Lord. And I just love you so much, and I thank you for this opportunity to be here, Lord. We love you, we praise you, and we all said, Amen. Remember, be nice to Lonnie, okay? <laughs> Thank you, ladies.